So our reading now is taken from Romans chapter 7, verse 7, and we'll go down to verse 13, which in the ESV is in the middle of a paragraph, and, but don't be perturbed by that. Uh, let's, uh, let's hear God's words. You may remember from last week that as we're looking at the law, uh, one of the features of the law as it comes to a sinful human heart is that it seems to stimulate in that sinful human heart more sin, uh, more passions, more lusts. Uh, And so uh, Paul asks this obvious, what might seem an obvious question. Uh, He's theoretically speaking, he's anticipating a question from his readers. He says, what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when that commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So we started last week thinking about the the relationship that the Christian Uh, well, anyone has, to the law of God in verses 1 to 6. And in particular, what happens to that relationship when he or she becomes a Christian, that relationship you have with the law, what happens to it when you become a Christian? And how is the Christian supposed to view the law of God? And what, if anything, has he or she got to do with it now that he or she is a Christian? And we saw Paul using an analogy uh, to help us to understand the analogy of of marriage. And the law says, uh, in regard to marriage, he says, when a man dies, his widow is then released from the obligations of that marriage, and and she is then free to to marry someone else, to marry uh, another man. And that's the analogy that Paul uses... Uh, to describe what's happened to somebody who has become, has put their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's not, as, if you think about it carefully, it's not quite an exact parallel, uh, but it's sufficient for our, our purposes. Uh, as it were, what, what Paul is saying here is, uh, human beings are married to the law. They have a relationship with the law that's rather like a, a marriage. And when I say the law, 
I think Paul is primarily thinking here about the Ten Commandments. Um, the, those moral principles which, of course, Adam uh, had in his heart when he was made, which was codified in uh, the giving of the law in Mount Sinai. And interestingly, under the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit comes uh, in Ezekiel 36 and uh, Jeremiah 31. The Holy Spirit comes and writes the law into the heart in a new way. So that law, uh, that's the law that I think is being spoken of here. And uh, so a, a person is, is bound to that law because we have it within us. We're, we're, we're made in it, if you like. We're made with it. Um, and so we're bound to its demands. Everybody has a sense of right and wrong. Everybody knows what's wrong and what, what's good, what's bad. And some of us gets twisted, of course under our sin, but basically people have this conscience and they know what's right and wrong. Uh, We're made with that built into us. So we're bound to its demands. We are liable for its penalties and uh, in a sense we know that. We know we're guilty when we sin. But it's it's actually worse worse than simply that the law stands in judgment over us It is that because we have sin present in us, it's more like a a master uh, controlling us. And in a sense, the presence of the law actually makes that master called sin, it makes it worse. The the law makes it worse. So verse 5 of chapter 7, Paul said this, we saw it last week. For while we were living in the flesh, that's when we were not Christian, Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And uh, remember, some of these readers are are Jewish Christians who who are brought up in the law. And they understand that their past life was a life giving themselves to the law. But actually, it was stimulating all kinds of sins and passions of the heart. And so even, even though... You know the right things to do. The sin within you rises up in rebellion and wants to do the opposite. That's, that's a pretty staggering thing to say. The answer to man's problems is not more law. It's something else. And, um, and so people left in their sin can be described as being in this kind of bad marriage to the law. And it's a terrible situation to be in until there is a death. There has to be a death for that bad marriage to be broken. And that death becomes clear for the new Christian as he or she puts his faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose again from the dead. Because As you are in him by faith, you too have died with him in a death like his, and you have been raised to life in a a resurrection like his. That's what it means to become a Christian. You come to a living faith, and you now live. And so, uh, Paul puts it like this, and he puts it in verse 4. He says, likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. See, the marriage bond is broken between you and the law. Through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him 
who has been raised from the dead. So now, you're no longer married to the law, but you're married to Jesus. As I said last week, men, I know that's difficult for us to think about as being married to Jesus, the man. (laughs) But this is how the Bible puts it. In order that we may bear fruit for God. This is now how we live. And we bear glorious fruit for him in our lives. Um, So what Paul is showing us here is the law cannot save anyone. Actually, just because of sin. It can can only point out sin, but it can never do anything about it. It in, In a sense, it makes things worse. But only Christ can save us. And there needs to be a death first, and that involves our death to the law, so that we are now free to marry another, Jesus Christ. Now, it's just one point to, I just need to emphasize this point, uh, something for us to note as we move on. If we are Christians today, we have died to the law, but what he is not saying is that the the law has died. The law has not died. The law has not gone away. The law has not been abolished. Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 5, 17. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So just to point out here, the law has not gone away. It's still living. But our relationship to the law has now changed. That we are now married to Christ, as it were. But the law is still operative. But it comes to us now through Jesus. Through and through his, the power of his Holy Spirit. And remember what I said about the new covenant. Jeremiah 31-33. That the new covenant involves the writing of the law into our hearts. So what the Holy Spirit does. He gives us new life to us. It gives the law a new vitality within our hearts. Not, in the external, not just in the external written documents. But in our hearts we have this living word that, that says, I know what I want to do. I know who I want to serve. I know the, the God I want to, to live for. And how do I live for him? Well, I live according to God's moral commandments. It's important we understand uh, that our relationship to the law, uh, that we understand that our relationship to the law, we we need to understand this relationship to the law because, and I want to just digress a little on a theological point, uh, because there are two errors that I think Christians often fall into in the law as Christians. They're they're old errors. You'll recognize, some of you might recognize the, the names for these errors. The two errors are, uh, on the one side, I may be prejudging the issue by calling it one side or the other, but on one side, legalism, and on the other side, antinomianism. And I'll explain what that is in a second. Legalism and antinomianism. Legalism, um, I think we might be, think we're familiar with what legalism actually is. It is the idea that we try to keep the law And thereby, God will accept us if I keep the law well enough. So that's that's kind of legalism. I use the law 
to get into the good books of God and God looks upon me and my works and, and therefore declares me righteous. And, and often that's found in non-Christians who are trying to work their way to salvation or maybe they're not sure about if, if God exists but if he does, you know, I'm going to live a good life and uh, you know, I'm, I've got a lot in the bank here with all my good works and so when I get, if, I, if there's a heaven and if I get there, then maybe God will accept me. Uh, this is a form of legalism. But that way of thinking can often be found in Christians too uh, who have not fully understand the fullness of the gospel and the full assurance of the gospel. Uh, and, and the old habits die hard, don't they? Um, the old life still sticks with us. And so we begin to think that our performance affects our standing before God. But if we understand the gospel, of course, our standing doesn't change. We can never not be children of God. Uh, sons and daughters looking forward to an inheritance. But that idea of performance uh, is, a, is, is what you call legalism. So the other side of this is antinomianism. Now, what does that mean? Um, anti against nomos law. So I'm against the law. Uh, and this is what happens when um, you become a Christian and you say, I don't, you know, I don't have to live by the law anymore. I don't have to care about the law. Um, actually, I'm, I've, I'm saved. And uh, I, can just, uh, I can just rest in the promise that God gives me and I can live how I like. And if I sin, well, there's always forgiveness. You know, it doesn't really matter. And so, antinomianism. Um, now, it looks like those two things are opposites. Legalism on the one side and antinomianism on the other. Um, and most evangelicals, I think, and I, in my experience this is true, most evangelicals will say, well, if I'm going to err on one side or the other, then I'm going to err on the antinomian side. Because we all know that legalism is a bad thing. So, you know, if I can be antinomian, and not, you know, I don't care about God's law too much, but, you know, uh, I've got God's grace. And it sounds like it's more grace-orientated. But actually, both errors are pretty serious errors. Because both errors... Deny that God is good in some way or other. The legalist denies God's goodness because he doesn't quite believe that God's promises in the gospel are true. And so he's always questioning, is God really that good? I've got to put some stuff in the bank as far as God is concerned. I've got to have my own personal insurance policy of good works. So you doubt God's goodness if you're a legalist in his promises. But the antinomian has a different problem. But in the end it comes down to the same thing. He denies God's goodness because he denies God's commands are actually good for us as Christians. That if God commands us to live in a particular way as saved people then the antinomian says, it's really saying, I don't believe that you mean that for my good. 
we think of particular commands where that is true. I, I often think the, the, the one, the touchstone of our society today and the Christian world today is, is what do you do with the Lord's Day? The fourth commandment. What do you do with that? Do we just ignore that now? Do we believe that God means it for our good? When he commands it. If you deny the Lord's Day, I think, today, you're going in this antinomian direction. You're actually denying that God is saying something good to you. Um, so both errors have a problem with the goodness of God. Both errors also deny the completeness of Christ's work for us. The legalist denies the fullness of Christ's work for us, so something outside of us. So, uh, what he did on the cross. The legalists can't quite believe that that is sufficient to deal with all of our sins. The antinomian denies the fullness of Christ's work in us by the Holy Spirit. In working in us, conformity to his law. If you look ahead to chapter 8... Uh, look at those early verses. There's a wonderful verse there. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. This is the interaction between the flesh, our sinful flesh and, and the law. Could not do. The law couldn't do this. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that, and this is the key bit, key bit, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Part of the, the saving work of Christ, the ongoing saving work of Christ, is to transform us and bring us in greater conformity to Christ who did what? He kept the law perfectly. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, to bring you into greater conformity to his law. And we love it, because it's written in our hearts. We never do anything against, our, uh, against desire that God has put there. That's why it's such a wonderful thing. The fullness of Christ's work for, in salvation for us. So, both errors cannot see the goodness of God, and they cannot see the fullness of Christ's saving work. And the root of both errors, I think, is that they, they as, it, as it were, they separate God from his law. Uh, they separate the law from God's goodness and from Christ himself. And the answer to both errors, legalism and antinomianism, is actually Christ. More of Christ. More of Jesus Christ in your life. He is the gospel. And it's Christ Jesus who sends his spirit into our hearts and writes that law into our hearts. And that's why Paul can say in answer to those, uh, give an answer to these two questions that he asked in in 6.1 and 6.15, remember he said, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the answer? By no means. Because you have Christ. Or 
Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means, he says. No, you don't sin. You don't keep sinning. Um, It is inconceivable that the Christian who is in Christ should should be lazy about sin. It's It's just inconceivable. Well, that was my digression. (laughs) Oh, we haven't taken up too much time with that. But I think it's really important to kind of just see how we relate to the law appropriately. As we turn to 7 to 13, just understand something about Paul's background and Paul's life. Remember, he's not giving a theoretical idea of the law. Actually, he's brought up in it. He knows it inside out. Um, Remember... When he spoke in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 22, he spoke about his personal experience. He said, I am a Jew born in, uh, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are today. And you see this throughout his letters as well. You see, um, for example, Philippians 3, that he was... 3.5, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Or to Galatians, he says, in uh, Galatians 1.13, you have heard my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and violently, violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond Many my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So as a young man, Paul is extremely clever. He knows the law inside out. He's far above, ahead of anyone else in his class. And he was, so he was eager. He was committed to Judaism. And he was so committed to it that he began to persecute the church with a venom uh, that's been unparalleled. Ever since. He loved God's law, or so he thought. And he mixed with all the top people. He was a righteous man, an upright man, a a godly man, or at least so he thought in his own eyes. But there came a point where everything changed for Paul. And it came when he met Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. And the thing for Paul is that he, was, he had to be ripped apart. He had to be turned upside down. He had to be put to death and brought to life again. And I want us to understand this, that Christianity can never simply be an intellectual commitment to a set of propositions as though it's a matter of carrying certain ideas in your head. Or simply a lifestyle choice. This is what we do as Christians. True Christianity will deconstruct you so that all the things that you felt were important, components of your identity in the past, are tossed out because you realize they are worthless compared to the need to be united to Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. And so if you're a Christian today, you'll be saying to yourself, whatever I am, whatever I feel is important to me, way above all of those things is that I am so thankful to have Jesus Christ. And I would gladly toss 
any of those other things in in order to, to have him and more of him. Jesus Christ becomes the center for you. And for those who are not Christian, those who might be interested in what it means to be a Christian, then you need to know this, that God, for you to become a Christian, God will deconstruct what you currently are and reconstruct you in the image of his son. And at times that will hurt, but it will be worth it. So what is, uh, so that's just background. What does Paul say here about the law? And the first thing he says is, the law is not sin. The law is not sin. And we might be tempted to think that because Paul has said we're freed from sin in, verse, in chapter 7 and now uh, in chapter 6 and now we're freed from the law. Does that mean therefore that the law is sin in some way? After all, both sin and the law are problems to the sinner left to himself. And Paul is eager to say here that the answer is absolutely not, by no means. The law is not sin. And Paul is eager to put clear daylight between those two ideas. Now we all know that sin is bad. But nowhere has Paul ever suggested that the law is abolished. Or that it has died, as I said. As though like sin, the problem is a problem to be disposed of. On the contrary, Paul says, he's going to say, he says in verse 12, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then he says in verse 22, I delight in the law in my inner being. So he gets a delight in the law. The law is good. So it's really important for us as Christians uh, to understand this. You'll often hear people say, you often hear Christians perhaps foolish and somewhat immature Christians say that they're not under law but under grace. But as we saw, that's, that doesn't mean you jettison the law. It just means it doesn't rule over us. Paul says, I delight in the law of God. That's actually the normal Christian experience. I delight in the law of God. The problem, therefore, is not the law. The problem is sin. And when you're in sin and not saved, the law is powerless to save you. And the interaction of the law with the sinful heart is simply to produce more sins within you. So as Christians, we maintain a healthy view of the law of God, but it does leave us with a question. Paul used to be zealous for the law before he was a Christian, but that was no good. So how is the law supposed to work in the life of the Christian then? Well, we need to look at Paul's own experience. And this is what Paul is really talking about here. He talks about his own death. Not literal death, but in a sense a spiritual death under the law. Paul approaches this this problem with this general principle. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin is. Paul's describing here, I think, one of the functions of the law, that it like becomes like a set of spectacles so that you can see things more clearly that corrects a defective vision. So when the law comes in, suddenly you see things more clearly. And when you, so you put those spectacles on, you see your sin, um, and you can see what it does, and you see the mess that you're in. 
And Paul says here that there was a time when the law meant nothing to him. And that's what he means, I think, when he says, I was once alive apart from the law. He doesn't mean spiritually alive, but he says, I didn't have to care about the law because I didn't know what, what it was. But then something happened to him. And it came to light that he became aware of certain sins in his own, in his own heart. So the sin of covetousness seems to be a key thing for Paul. And you can see it in other places. He writes about his covetous heart. And he realizes he has this deep covetousness within him. And, and what covetous means is there's something I want but I don't have. And I'm, I really would like to have it. Maybe he saw other people who had what he wanted. I sometimes think that in Acts chapter 6, when Stephen is arguing with the, the members of the Cilician synagogue. Remember, Paul was a Cilician. He'd be a young man at that point. Was Paul arguing with Stephen? And Paul, with all his intellect, he couldn't seem to get around Stephen, who seemed to grasp what the gospel is. And maybe that's stimulated a covetous spirit within him as he looked at Stephen. But a covetous spirit that actually resulted in him approving of the death of Stephen in chapter Acts 7. It's a pretty shocking picture. He couldn't shake off this covetousness. You know, and what happens when you're left to yourself? Well, of course, you try harder. You try to avoid covetousness. You try to suppress those desires. And maybe I'm extrapolating a little here, but it's notable that Paul uh, became a very, very zealous against Christians, trying to stamp them out uh, with unseemly zeal, even to the point of murderous intent. But then Paul describes in verse 8, uh, this is happening to him. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, Produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Something that happens beyond his control. The law points out sin, but as soon as it happens, it's, this power called sin seizes hold of it and takes the opportunity. It's, it's, it's rather like a... You know, sin is like this beast of a guard dog that is sleeping. And the law prods it by saying, what a nasty dog that is. And suddenly the dog is awake and starts chasing you and threatening you. It becomes really nasty. And that's how the law and the sin seems to interact with one another. Sin kind of sleeps until the law comes along and prods it. And then suddenly sin rises up in the heart. Like a, an angry dog. This is what happens when somebody's not a Christian who's still under the power of sin and trying and lives a morally upright life. Because if they're really diligent and try harder, all that happens is the scale of the sin within their hearts gets worse. That's why the Pharisees were Jesus constantly called them hypocrites. And yet to the outer world the rest of the world they seem to be keeping the law. But Jesus calls them hypocrites. Why? Because all the sins were rising up within their hearts. The truth was quite different from the outer appearance. 
So when this happens, uh, you know, one of two things can happen to you. Either what happens to you is that what happened to Paul, you despair of ever achieving moral perfection. And like Paul, when the crucified risen Christ comes into your life, uh, like you did to Paul on the Damascus Road, you bow and you submit to him, uh, to Jesus and his lordship, and your world is turned upside down by Jesus, or you simply live like a hypocrite. Like the Pharisees and the priests and the lawyers with Jesus. I hope you've all come to Jesus Christ today. Maybe you used to think of yourself as a pretty good person. An admirable specimen of humanity. But maybe now you've discovered the problem of the human heart. And that there is a power at work, was a power at work in you that you could not control, that kept you in bondage to sin, and that nobody could set you free from it. Have you turned to Jesus Christ to find freedom from that bondage? He's the only one who can save you from that bondage and all its consequences. And this is what happened to Paul. When he came to Jesus Christ, he was found by Jesus, and countless others have been found by him since. We're nearly finished. Probably had enough already. But let me just finish with a word about the usefulness of the law now as a Christian. And we'll look at this more next week, but remember what Paul says about the law the law is holy. And the commandments is holy and righteous and good. It's a signal to us. It is a reminder to us that the law hasn't been put to death. The law still lives. And nowhere does Paul say, don't bother to keep the law. Actually, he encourages us to keep the law in many places. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, as he said in Matthew 5, 17. He came to fulfill it. And the law has this continuing role to expose sin in the Christian life. You saw that in verse 13. And so the law becomes, as it has always been intended to be, a tool in God's hands to identify our sin and push us to Christ for his grace and help. So the Christian is not now marked by morbid introspection verging on despair. Nor is the Christian oblivious to the sin that is in his or her life so that he or she doesn't care, thinking he or she can break the law and it doesn't matter. Rather, in the Christian, the Christian life is marked by a glorious harmony between on the one hand being humbled before the law to recognize our sin and seeing that our sin would kill us if left to itself. But on the other hand, seeing the glorious joy of the liberty of Christ. Because Jesus Christ is now your master. And he will save you. More of Christ. If you're a legalist, the answer to legalism is more of Jesus Christ. If you're an antinomian, the answer to that error is more of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the what is a, is a complex set of ideas that Paul brings before us. But he wants us to be free of misconceptions about the law. To come to Christ so that we can then rightly put the law in its place. We pray to help us to do that. To live holy and godly lives. And all to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.